Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given only six minutes to present. This is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be both informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions and then we encourage you to make up your own mind. This week's topics include the interplay between old and new technologies, an overview of COVID treatments, the battle between the public and the elites, how the World Bank and other experts are undermining growth in developing and emerging economies by supporting autocratic regimes and top-down solutions, and finally, a post-mortem of the Georgia Senate races. We've got a lot to cover today. Our lead-off speaker is David Edgerton, who is the Hans Rousing Professor of the History of Science and Technology and Professor of Modern British History at King's College London. David will be speaking about his book, The Shock of the Old, Technology and Global History Since 1900. Our second speaker is Dr. Ari Cement, who is a pulmonologist at Mount, uh, Miami Beach's Mount Sinai Hospital, where he currently specializes in caring for COVID patients. I want to learn from Ari about current treatments, the efficacy of monoclonal antibodies, and the long-term lung damage from COVID. Ari has been treating COVID patients since the March outbreak. I want to hear from Ari what doctors have learned in the past year to improve outcomes and reduce mortality. Ari has a new book coming out in February entitled The Coronavirus Pandemic, Historical Medical and Halalic Perspective that is co-written with medical ethicist and rabbi Dr. Avraham Steinberg. What happens next then changes direction. We have a panel to discuss the interaction between elites and the public. Our first speaker is Martin Gurry, who is a former CIA agent and now a visiting fellow at George Mason's Mercatus Center. Martin is the author of The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. One of the underlying themes of the book is that elite institutions such as governments, media, and academia are losing their, their authority and monopoly control of information to dynamic amateurs and the broader public. Our second speaker is Bill Easterly, who is an economics professor at NYU and the author of The Tyranny of Experts, Economists, Dictators, and the Forgotten Rights of the Poor. The book challenges institutions like the World Bank that supports autocrats to implement top-down solutions to emerging market problems. Bill will explain how institutions like the World Bank and other NGOs and experts have undermined the development and harmed the citizens of these countries and why we should support property and human and individual rights. Our final speaker today is Alan Abramowitz, who is a political science professor at Emory University in Atlanta, and he will give us a postmortem on the Georgia Senate races. All right. That is today's session. Our first speaker today is David Edgerton, who will tell us about the importance of old technologies. David, take it away. Thank you very much indeed. Technology, like science, is a master concept, I would say, of, of modernity indeed. It has, however, extraordinarily slippery meanings. One minute technology is the latest technical gizmo, and the next is the very infrastructure of human existence. Similarly, science shifts vertiginously between meaning the product of academic research to becoming human reason itself. There are also, alas, concepts which invite more insincere moralizing than serious analysis. That the terms are associated with the future makes matters even worse. We end up gawping at an unknowable future with all the sophistication of judgmental children. 
they're concepts which, as we use them, turn us into, I've got to say it, ignoramuses. For example, it's a depressing experience to attend high-powered workshops on the impact technology will have on, say, work. Speakers will assume technology is something like a particular novelty, a single novelty which arises in outer space and which comes down to earth to change all our lives radically. They will, of course, signal their broad-mindedness, their humaneness, by recognizing the potential for bad effects, as well as good ones that they will want to celebrate. But good and bad effects are, in fact, mirror images of each other in these stories. Each is an argument for the power of the one big new thing, not evidence, actually, of any critical distance at all. Tech utopianism and dystopianism are two sides of the same now much debased coin. It's a kind of passe futurism drawn from the dregs of 20th century intellectual culture. It has little or nothing to do with what is supposedly new in the supposedly revolutionary new technologies which are hitting us all the time. An example. In the past five years, the idea of a fourth industrial revolution has become very fashionable. We are told this fourth industrial revolution is taking us into a new world and that it's led by artificial intelligence and robots. But its advocates can't explain why it isn't a third or indeed a 23rd industrial revolution, why it is driven by artificial intelligence and not something else entirely. And these advocates are certainly unaware that the whole idea of a fourth industrial revolution is old. Their predecessors were talking about it already in the 1940s. They're also unaware that the whole idea of second and third industrial revolutions is not only old, but nowhere near as robust as they assume. We shouldn't trust any claims that we are living through a fourth industrial revolution, nor should we trust claims that the past can be summed up as a recurring cycle of technical revolutions, or is rep well represented by trinities of inventions supplanting each other in time. In other words, the ideas of the second and third industrial revolutions, like the fourth, are untenable. These arguments reduce the history of the material to the history of selected novelties, not all novelties, and novelties indeed which have been granted revolutionary transformative powers, not at any time in their life, but near their introduction. But the material world isn't like this. It's much, much more complicated. There are many more inventions than we're aware of. New things often become powerful when they're old, not when they are new. And they wax and wane uh, uh, over time, indeed. The reality is, we don't know what was important, why, or when. But the conflation of what is significant with selected innovations at early stages of their lives that's so central to the notions of the second, third, fourth, and indeed the first industrial revolution is hardly confined to the study of the material constitution of society as a whole. The history of architecture, for example, is all too often a series of original works designed by selected elite architects, which stands for the history of all new design. Similarly, the history of books often turns out to be the development of the later literary can canon, which tells us little about literary novelty 
as a whole. But of course, only a fool would conflate elite architecture with building, or the literary canon with books as a whole, or indeed reading. In the case of technology, however, intelligent people, highly intelligent people, do conflate selective inventions with the whole world of artifice in which we live, and do so routinely. There's clearly something amiss with the concept of technology. It's in fact a complex changing term with a convoluted history. In the 19th century, it was an ology, like biology or sociology, uh, and indeed an ology that was rarely used. When it was used, it was there to describe the academic study of the technical arts. It was used, therefore, in the title of engineering schools or faculties, the most famous case being the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. But you'd find the term rarely used elsewhere. Technology meaning machinery, uh, 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 the things that were the products of um, the study of the of technical arts only comes into use in the United States in the interwar years and only becomes prevalent uh, uh, indeed around the world in the late 20th century. In practice, it's come to mean the latest machinery, not all machinery. And as I said a, mo a moment ago, sometimes just the latest digital uh, uh, gizmo. Technology seems to invite not modern thinking about the past, but very old-fashioned ways of reflecting on history. When it comes to technology, even in the supposedly postmodern world, the one we live in, uh, we are still in, a, in the realm of grand narratives of great ruptures and transitions, from industrial to post-industrial society, from Fordism to post-Fordism, from modernity to post-modernity. And of course, we have all those industrial revolutions driving change. These are, in fact, stage theories of history of the sort Joseph Stalin himself would blush at. They have all the historiographical subtlety of those school books telling us about the stone, bronze, and iron ages. Now, that's just about good enough for archaeology, but not for history, much less for understanding the present and the future. But these forms of understanding are deeply built into the concept of technology. It's, I think, time for this brain macerating term to return to its 19th century obscurity. But above all, we need to recognize that, uh, uh, that although we think we have one, we don't, in fact, have a proper account of the material constitution of the past, present, or future. All that talk, supposedly authoritative talk indeed, about the fourth, industrial, the fourth Industrial Revolution is in truth a measure of our ignorance. Thank you very much. David, th thank you. Um, all right, I guess I'll start out my first question about um, how we teach our kids uh, in school about um, technology. Uh, for example, in, I'll call it European or Western civilization classes, uh, we introduce the Industrial Revolution. We tell that story, you know, using the steam engine and and J the role of James Watt. We then have the Gilded Age, um, and then we you know we work into maybe World War II and how technology had changed. And then and usually they run out of time in the in the late 20th century to finish that part of the class. 
Um, but it sounds to me like you think that the way that we teach it, um, the history of technology, is fundamentally flawed. Um, can you talk a little bit about why we teach it in, a, in the wrong way and how, uh, or how we should teach it to, to the next generation of children? I don't really know uh, why we teach it in the, in the, in, in, in such uh, in such bad ways, but but we most certainly most certainly do. Um, uh, um, to illustrate the problem, yes, uh, it, steam drives the industrial revolution, um, and the steam is generally raised by by coal. So we associate the industrial revolution um, with with the with the mining of coal. But in fact, we mine more coal today than we ever did in the industrial revolution. And relative to the economy as a whole, we certainly mine more coal in 1900 than in than in 1800. So um, these these ideas of, of successive industrial uh, revolutions, I think, can profoundly mislead uh, um, uh, people as to to what our our material world is um, is made is made of essentially. And I think a proper history of technology, as I say, I don't I don't like that uh, that 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 term ought to give us an, an, an account of the material things um, that are in the world at any particular uh, historical period. So in 1800, we wouldn't uh, 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 be talking about an industrial revolution. We might be talking about, uh, about agriculture, for example, which would be the, the, uh, the, most, the most important uh, uh, industry. In terms of making things, we'd probably talk about what was going on in people's homes, rather than in the few factories that, that existed. Your book is called The Shock of the Old. And I, as I read the book, my takeaway was that um, items, older technologies, don't just disappear. Um, they they're continue on in growth. So your example that you just gave, that there was more substantially more uh, coal output at the end of the 19th century than at the beginning, um, is indicative of that. I thought the best example in your book related to the use of horses in war, where you said that the German army in World War II used many more horses than it did in World War I. Why do you think um, we always focus on the new and not, and not the old in terms of how technology affects our lives? I think essentially because our image of technology, again, this, this strange word, is one created by the proponents of new of new of new, of new technologies. Um, so we have a we have a long kind of record in in film, in books, in in, in magazines of novelties that that uh, that corporations and governments want to sell. And then when we as historians kind of go back, um, this is the first thing we we find. Uh, we find uh, 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 particular kinds of machines that particular people want to make important and sound uh, uh, as if they're the most uh, transformative of any particular age and 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 we often just reproduce those those same those same arguments um, what we should do of course is actually look at what people are, are, are using at any at any particular particular time uh, and of course much of what we use does, is, doesn't get reflected in 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 the world of film or literature or the or, or the newspapers, and in a way, the older it is, the less um, the less newsworthy, as it were, um, uh, it, it it is. So there's a systematic distortion uh, in, in, involved in in, uh, in taking uh, literary and, and and visual sources as the as the the first uh, port of uh, port of call for 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 an analysis. 
But it's interesting that you you pick up the the case of the of the horses. I mean, that's a particular uh, example where people are are, are are very very surprised by by that because we're used to seeing um, uh, uh, the the German army of um, 1939-40-41 portrayed as the most mechanized army in the world, uh, supported uh, typically in, in, in newsreel extracts by, by dive bombers. That's, that's the deeply ingrained uh, image that we've, uh, that we've had actually from, from, the war, uh, from the war itself. But it's not an image that, um, that, that would, would last um, very long if we actually looked at Looked at the makeup of the um, of, of the German German army or the number of uh, or the number of tanks, and one of the strongest images I got actually from a, from a rare documentary that interviews people was of a of a German soldier talking about Operation Barbarossa, where he described crossing the frontier into the into the Soviet Union and described uh, being able to see thousands and thousands and thousands of men walking uh, into into the into the Soviet Union. And that that was the reality for for uh, for the German army of that time. You know, we did a a, a book club uh, by on the horse flu of eighteen seventy one uh, with Ernest Freiberg, and what he said uh, was that you know there was a flu that was killing off the horses, and you'd think by eighteen seventy one that wouldn't be critical to economic activity, but the railroads would bring in um, you know, various materials, but the last mile was always the horse, and if the horses were dead, you know, the, the, the stuff couldn't move. And I think that image is, is relevant here because you know, in many ways, even if, even if you do have inventions, um, we have to think in the context of how it fits in with everything else and, and where the, the problems are, the reverse salient in that, in that process uh, of how that will interact with other technologies. Yes, absolutely, and, and the case of the the, the 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 horse is not one of the uh, the horse population being independent of new transport technologies. Uh, new transport technology, the railway in particular, but also the, the ship, increase the the, the 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 horse population. I mean, the U.S. horse population peaks at around peaks around 1915, um, uh, uh, because there is increasing mechanization and it's horsepower mechanization of U.S. agriculture. The um, the urban uh, horse you know, uh, peaks in the in the early early 20th century. Why? Because cities become bigger, um, because they're supplied by, by by railways and by and by ships. So um, uh, uh, the, the, it's not simply that the horse is a is a kind of persistent feature. Um, it's uh, it's actually uh, some, something that's that's expanding. The, the horse population is expanding. Uh, it, um, in, in the late 19th century, all over uh, all over the world, um, and in 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 many places, it's expanding well into the 20th century. Um, another example um, I want to bring up: Alan Greenspan, when he was uh, head of the Fed here in the U.S., he um, he liked to talk about economic history and and the role um, of invention, and he gave like a couple of examples. Uh, one was that you could, uh, you could see the role of computers every day, you just couldn't see it in the GDP statistics. Um, that's, you know, that story is, he, he said that 20 years ago. Um, and so that technology was becoming more omnipresent, but wasn't yet fully productive. And he compared it to the role of electricity in manufacturing in the 19th century. 
when um, it took a long time for existing manufacturing sectors to fully employ um, electricity. How do you think about that transitionary period when you continue to use the old? Um, everyone seems to observe that that's our future, uh, but you're not there yet. And how do I think about that transition and then um, you know, the ultimate collapse of, for example, steam? Yes, no, it was a famous uh, quip, that one. The, um, the cases aren't um, parallel, actually, electricity and, uh, and, and IT. Um, I mean, it, it, it is well established indeed by, by Paul David that, uh, that the impact of electricity uh, took place decades after its, uh, its, its, its introduction. Um, but the case of IT is a little bit different, I think, because IT was clearly used uh, um, uh, in, in, in lots of different uh, 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 contexts. I think the, 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 um, the question may be really just how big is the effect of, of, of IT rather than its effect is, is, uh, is delayed. There's a kind of assumption that IT should have had this dramatic effect. Um, and the second, um, and when that was found not to be the, the, uh, the case, I, let's say it wasn't in the statistics, the assumption was that the effect would come, would come later. Um, well, I'm not, I'm not sure that the, the effect is detectable later. Uh, and in any case, there have been many, many more changes in the, in, in the economy than the introduction of, of, uh, of IT. And this is, this is an example of this rather problematic way of thinking about new technologies and, and the, the economy. You, you take a technology that which you assume to be massively important and then look for uh, the, the, uh, the, the impact. I would much rather uh, look at the economy and see what's changing in it and deduce from that what is having um, the, 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 greatest, uh, the greatest impact. And you know, IT may may come out at at uh, at, uh, at, at some time in, or, or in other times in some in some sectors and and, uh, and not and not in others. But the isolating of one of one uh, technological element seems to be um, seems to me to be um, uh, uh, inappropriate way of, uh, of of going about this sort of sort of investigation. Hi guys, I got cut out. You were cut out. Yeah, I just watched it the last 30 seconds. Um, I missed what you said, but I'll go on. I wanted to join um, Ari Cement, um, our pulmonologist, in this conversation as well. Ari, um, one of the interesting things about COVID treatments is that um, you're starting to use steroids that have been generic and have been around for decades. Um, how often in medicine do you use the old to solve new problems and you rely not so much on some of the latest and greatest technologies in the treatments of, of novel diseases like uh, COVID? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. We're using a lot of the old therapies for COVID, that is true. Uh, steroids are actually not, they might be an old therapy, but they're used for so many pulmonary diseases, so that sort of makes sense. But drugs like ivermectin, things that, you know, you wouldn't, think you would use are just good old vitamins, vitamin C, vitamin D. That, that's, uh, I think, a better example of, of trying to use it. Even the best example is convalescent plasma. If you go back to, in the American Journal of Public Health in 1919, you could read about one of the lieutenants using convalescent plasma during the, during the Spanish flu. And now, all of a sudden, that's the rage right now is, you know, let's use convalescent plasma. That's bringing up the old 
and treating treating a new disease. I can think of, a, of an older one still, and not a treatment, but a, a means of coping with um, with the disease, and that's quarantine. Exactly. Oh. That's funny. Um, I mean, there, there isn't a, 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 there isn't a more classical approach to infectious disease than than than, than quarantine, um, and uh, of course it came back um, with a vengeance. We've we've had the, the the greatest global quarantine in human history. You know, you talked about you were making fun of people emphasizing the upcoming and important role of both robotics and AI. You know, I was thinking about having a, a show on those topics. Um, do you think it's just a waste of time to engage with that, or is, is your point that calling it like some sort of critical new variable that's going to alter our world, is that the problem? Um, yes, I, I hope I, 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 um, I didn't come across as, uh, as, as, as making fun of AI. I mean, I was, I was making fun of a particular theory as to how AI would change the world. Um, and the fourth industrial revolution. Um, I mean, I'm not an expert on, on, on AI. I think there are divergent views as to what it, it can and can't uh, do and how it will, how it will change. Um, my difficulty is really the, the assumption that we already know that AI is going to change the world and it will be you know, one of the most important factors uh, doing that, that changing. I, 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 I would take a lot of convincing that that's, that's the case. And it's really interesting that the arguments that are that are made for it are actually are not that uh, not that convincing. Um, it's a series of, uh, of of assertions of a very very familiar um, familiar kind. So we need to. We, I, I'm not saying that um, that that new things aren't uh, uh, coming along. What I'm saying is we don't have a proper picture of the full range of new things, and we don't have a good un, good understanding of of um, what the likely effects are going to be. Um, and instead of that, we, we have the, the recurrence of these very, very old modes of, of proclaiming um, uh, um, uh, certain technologies to be transformative and, um, and world-changing. You know, it feels like you're starting um, to challenge the kind of the way we think about technology um, in a historical setting. Um, so going back to where we started the conversation about how we teach history. You know, in, in history classes, we, we were presented with, you know, Gutenberg's technology, uh, the printing press, uh, and its importance for idea generation, and maybe just playing all to the present, I'm sure that that same class today was taught they would be emphasizing the role of the Internet to disperse information. Um, if if you don't like that approach, how would you replace that um, in educating or, or thinking about history of technology in a historical setting? Well, I would I would just ask the question, you know, where, when in the um, 15th, 16th, 17th century did people actually get their information from? Where today do people get information from? And not assume that today it's the internet and back then it was the, the printed book. Um, uh, I mean, people today... Mm -hmm. Uh, get information from all sorts of uh, places, including newspapers and um, um, and you know old-fashioned television, uh, and we systematically downplay the importance of uh, of those things. So when we talk about President Trump um, uh, and his uh, mediatic influence, we alight on 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 Twitter 
but uh, we've got to think about um, Fox News. We've got to think about um, the um, the New York Post, is it, and um, mm-hmm. and doubtless many other uh, newspapers. So we've 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 got to look at, uh, at at much much more than the thing that we take in advance uh, uh, to be the the the, uh, the key the key medium. David, thank for you. Example, for example, I mean, uh, the the um, I I I'm I'm sure the uh, that that sermons in from church pulpits were a more important source of ideas in the uh, in the 17th century than than books. I bet that's right. Okay, we're going to go on to our next speaker, uh, who is Dr. Art Cement. You just heard from him very briefly a second ago. Um, he is a pulmonologist and COVID expert. Um, Ari, go ahead. Okay, so in my six minutes, I want to touch uh, base on three topics. One is monoclonal antibodies, which I'm very excited about. Number two, just talk about COVID lung problems in general, as you asked. And number three, why the disease lingers and what's the story with the long hauler syndrome. So we're going to do all that in six minutes. Monoclonal antibody, the two companies that you might have heard of are Eli Lilly, the Bamlan Nivimab, and Regeneron which is casarivimab and imdevimab. Both of those together make what they call a cocktail. So what's the difference between polyclonal, monoclonal, cocktail? You hear all these terms also, hyperimmune globulin. We don't have time to go through everything, but two weeks after you beat COVID infection, you have the antibodies to the spike protein in your blood. The spike protein is that protein of the virus that enables the virus to get into your cell. So two weeks after you would beat COVID, you have antibodies. If you donate your plasma, plasma is about 45% of your blood, and it's, it's like a diluted soup full of many antibodies, meaning you have antibodies versus rhinovirus, the common cold, CMV, other viruses. But there's also several different types of antibodies versus that spike protein of the virus. That's polyclonal. There's a whole variety of antibodies. It binds to multiple epitopes or antigens of that spike protein. Monoclonal means that it's actually directed to one epitope. They genetically engineer it. Regeneron is the company that did it, Eli Lilly. And it's a more concentrated soup. Think about that plasma full of just monoclonal antibodies. It could be much stronger. So if the both, both companies looked at uh, patients who were newly infected within three days. And basically, it lowers the viral load. And more importantly, it prevents perhaps the cytokine cytokine storm, which really causes the problem later on. So right now we have an emergency use authorization. It's not FDA approved officially because the production it was still lagging behind. So whereas I was sending my patients here in Miami that had Regeneron trial, I was sending 19-year-olds, 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds. It was a safe drug. However, the EUA only applies to the one to the, to the people who are at most risk. Who is that? If you're less than 55, you have to have a BMI greater than 35. That means you gotta be six foot tall, 260 pounds. You gotta be very heavy. Or chronic kidney disease, diabetes, immunosuppressed. If you're 55 to 65, you have to have chronic lung disease or cardiovascular disease or hypertension. Now, anybody over 65 should be getting this therapy. So all your listeners today, if anybody is over 65 and they have acute COVID, they need to go get this monoclonal antibody infusion within three days. That's what's going to be the best bang for their buck. The Blaze 1 trial, which was the Bamlanivimab, basically showed that 97% of those high-risk patients did not have problems. 
so that's where that, that basically comes from. That's monoclonal antibodies. What about COVID lung problems? Where, how do you see it? Why do you see it? Alveolus is where the gas exchange occurs in the lung. The alveolus is important, uh, and it uh, interfaces with the capillary in the pulmonary in your lungs. And if you have a problem with the alveolus, it gets flooded with fluid. That's the main issue with COVID. So if you look at the autopsy studies, not only is there ARDS, which is fluid-filled alveolus, impairing that gas exchange, but there's also microthrombosis. So what we're finding is not only treating with steroids later on in the disease, but perhaps anticoagulation as well seems to be beneficial. So treatment in general includes antivirals early, like remdesivir, or even things like you heard of plaquenil, zithromax, ivermectin, if you take it early, might have an effect on the virus. But later on in the disease, steroids and IL-6 inhibitors, you might have heard of tocilizumab and anticoagulation, that is really the key later on in the disease. So what about fewer deaths, higher hospitalization? There really isn't fewer deaths. 4,000 people dying a day is not fewer deaths, but the percentage mortality has been decreasing. Early on in the pandemic, we saw here and they saw everywhere 30% mortality, but now we're seeing mortalities about 10% people seem to be living. Why is that? Because we are focusing the strategies as we see them later on in the disease to steroids, early anticoagulation, these IL-6 inhibitors, and of course, avoiding intubation. And the last topic you asked me to touch upon is the long hauler syndrome. We're now seeing patients who survived COVID but now have other problems. What is the long hauler syndrome? It's, there's a variety of symptoms related to this. Uh, the, the article that really stimulated this buzz about long hauler syndrome was out of Italy in August. Actually, in JAMA was published that 40% or 50% of patients had fatigue out of 143 COVID survivors, and about 40% had dyspnea. Just published last week in journal Lancet was a six-month follow-up from China in Wuhan. A lot of the patients were in Wuhan. 1,700 patients, 1,733 patients, six-month follow-up, 63% of them had lingering fatigue a quarter of them had sleep problems, and a quarter of them had anxiety and depression. What is the etiology for the long hauler syndrome? It's partly psychosomatic, partly physical. It probably will be a little bit like fibromyalgia, perhaps. Nobody knows. Those patients who've had severe lung disease, who had documented pulmonary fibrosis, are obviously going to have shortness of breath. They're going to have pulmonary function test findings consistent with pulmonary fibrosis, and there's also an element of myocarditis, perhaps, in, in probably a smaller amount of patients, but inflammation of the heart as well. So that's my take on those three topics. Awesome. All right. Um, let's start with the monoclonals. So my audience is, has a substantial number of 50-year-olds, and it seems like uh, we're on and I'm not sure our 50-year-olds uh, are taller than six feet or weigh more than 260. So, um, but yet you'd say that the monoclonal antibodies is like the, is the gold. That's what we so desperately want. Um, how do we get them if we're not, um, if, you, if we follow these EUA guidelines? Um, first of all, I know that the government thought that this was originally um, in tight supply. Is it? And if not, um, what can we do to, to get this? And will it make a big difference even for us 50-year-olds 
uh, in terms of preventing a, a cytokine storm or will prevent hospitalization or make the disease much less problematic? Right. That's a great question. So, the, yeah, the EUA is really primarily because the highest risk patients will have problems. So if you look at the Johns Hopkins, they actually have an online risk calculator. You could plug in your age, your, 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 your comorbidities. They will tell you the risk of having a problem. Even these patients that are high risk, there's still a good 80% chance that you're not going to have a problem. But there's a 20% chance you will have a problem. So I'm a big fan of using it whenever you can. You shouldn't look at for reasons not to get the medicine, you should look for reasons to get the medicine. So if, you have a, if you're a 50-year-old, but you were told you had hypertension once, I would say that's hypertension. You know, you were really told you had hypertension. You can't lie, but mm -hmm. if you had diabetes, you know, there is a, a tighter supply, but as you pointed out, the supply is coming up. So initially, we might have had a rigorous uh, EUA. Now it's probably maybe a time to loosen up a little bit, and I would be a fan of loosening that requirement, especially because it's very safe. But yeah, we can't lie, but if you have those risk factors, you should find a reason to get the drug. Does that make sense? Yeah, you mentioned that we have to get, it has best results within three days of, is that symptoms? Is that, you know, because the way, I mean, I see how time works. You get symptom, and then in the next day or two, you go run out to see if you get, you get tested. And then some of these tests take two or three days to come back to you. And now we're on day four. Um, <clears throat> have we already blown our, our window? Uh, no. How much worse is it on day four than day three? Um, why um, should you still get it on day eight? I mean, how do, how do we think about um, the efficacy depending on day past first symptom? That's a great question, too. They, that was within three days of test of getting the test done. So patients typically had symptoms a couple days before. So, you know, I would say if you're within the first 7 to 12 days, you're still before the cytokine storm. It's very variable in people. And I would say, I would say that there's probably a, a clear benefit. So when I say within three days, it's within three days of the test being positive. You want to be able to get it. And there's no reason for somebody to wait two days for a PCR test if you're really a high-risk person. You, you pay extra money to get that PCR test fast. Um, change, just, changing, uh, just changing subjects within, um, you know, in, in one of your papers, you, you quote a Dr. Martin Landry from Oxford. And he said the disease is really like two phases. There's a phase where the virus dominates and the immunological phase where the, where the immune system causes dominance. And that second phase, we sh how do you think about these two different phases? We talked about this first phase um, with the monoclonal, which is the, um, the virus phase. But when we switch out of the virus phase into the, I'll call it that storm phase or the immune system phase, um, how do we change the medication, how do you think about uh, the risks, and maybe you can describe what it's like when you first see that patient who comes in at day 10 who's going through the storm on, on what you're going to do to make him better. Right. So when you see the patient, uh, typically in the first phase, when we first started out in March, we were seeing all the patients. We thought this was an acute, this was their acute virus, but it really wasn't. It was day 7 to day 12 of their disease which was really the cytokine storm. So when we were treating with these drugs like Kaletra 
these HIV medicines, high-dose Plaquenil and Zithromax, all across the nation, nobody was seeing any results because we were treating the wrong phase of the, of the disease. Now when we see the patients, yeah, we might use the convalescent plasma, which might have some anti-inflammatory uh, mechanism as well, but really the hallmark is steroids, is trying to break down uh, some of the inflammation, which unfortunately it doesn't work all the time, but it does work a good portion of the time, as well as these IL-6 inhibitors, which are other in anti-inflammatories like tocilizumab. When you see the patient, it's quite clear that they're not in acute virus phase already because they've had their symptoms already for the last seven to 10 days, and they are coming with more pulmonary infiltrates that we already know this is, this is the cytokine storm. We could also follow the inflammatory markers like CRP uh, and sederates, those, those sort of uh, markers that tell us that this is more of the storm than it is the acute virus. So I don't think the audience is that familiar with these inflammatory variables. So uh, I'll, I'll start it out and then maybe Ari, if you could fill it in. So when you're in the hospital, um, every morning you take a blood test, and in that blood test they check for certain inflammatory variables. And maybe, Ari, if you could explain like, which variables do you look at, why, and how they show inflammation. And then once you see those variables, how do you vary the, the steroid or remdesivir response to um, deal with those inflammatory variables and then check to see what's working and what's not to make your next, your next judgment call? Right. So I personally am not a huge fan of the, of the inflammatory variables, but they, we do test them. CRPs, C-reactive protein, I, I, I spoke about ESR, but we don't really check the set rate with this disease. We check uh, ferritin levels and uh, D-dimer on a daily basis. That actually might be a benefit because remember I mentioned about the microthrombosis. So if we see a D-dimer rising, we might say, you know what, it's not a good idea just to have them on prophylactic anticoagulation. We might need to step it up to intermediate uh, anticoagulation. But this uh, ferritin and CRP helps us understand perhaps should we increase our steroid? Should we not just give six milligrams a day? Should we give it twice a day? It helps us understand if, the, if it's getting out of control despite our therapy, if we need potentially to think about stepping up our game and moving them to the ICU for heightened coverage, and also some alternative therapies. Some places use plasma exchange if the ferritin levels are going very high to try to eliminate some of the cytokine storm. So there are, and, and very high dose steroids too for, for such a condition. So yeah, it, it is used, and but the most important element of the cytokine storm is really looking at the patient and seeing the oxygenation has it come down? Has the x-ray uh, really gotten worse? That will be more important than any, any inflammatory marker that you could see. Got it. All right, next question relates to um, when should I go to the ER? So we had um, discussions uh, with Dr. Leviton in a previous episode of What Happens Next uh, about what oxygen levels um, are dangerous and how to monitor it and then when to make the move um, to get admitted to the hospital. Um, and could you talk a little bit about that at, and maybe make it age-related as well? So imagine we have a 25, a 55, and a 75 or 80-year-old person. 
um, young, middle-aged, and elderly. And, yeah. you know, everyone now has their oximeter, and um, they see a 90, they just dropped from 96 to 93. Go to the ER or not, 91, 89, 85. You know, t- tell me when, how we should be communicating with our physician. Uh, if we don't have a physician, when should we make a run for the ER? Okay, uh, great question. So the, uh, it's, it's, it's changed over time. So initially we would say even a 25-year-old with hypoxemia, oh, you got to run to the emergency room. More and more doctors, such as myself, have treated hundreds of patients with COVID, but most of my patients are actually outpatients. So if a patient who is 25, let's say, or even middle-aged without risk factors, and they desaturate on day eight of their disease after I gave them, let's say, uh, ivermectin and I gave them bamlanivimab, perhaps if they qualified, or just, let's say, ivermectin and z I treated something as an outpatient. And then day eight, they, they have hypoxemia uh, to 94%. If they're young without risk factors, I might put them on steroids and avoid the hospital and closely monitor them and text them at night. What's your saturation? That's, but if a patient is with high risk factors, 65, and they start seeing their oxygen levels drop to 91%, you know, that's a warning sign. You don't want to wait. You want to admit because there are other therapies you could only get in the hospital, such as remdesivir, convalescent plasma. As of now, you can't get that outpatient. So that, that's what I would do. Most patients, I could tell you, most patients respond very well to outpatient Decadron but it has to be treated with a physician who is used to treating this and somebody who understands that you need very close follow-up. What, um, there's been a lot of positive uh, articles in the medical journals about this, the steroid dexamethasone. Um, and it seems like that's part of a, a central part of, of care now. Can you tell us a little bit about that steroid, why it works, um, and why it's sort of at the core of current treatment. Yeah, so it's based on that recovery trial, which I don't have the data in front of me, but basically if you were requiring oxygen uh, in that trial in uh, England, then there was an actual mortality benefit if you were given Decadron over placebo. So it was one of the very first positive trial, so it obviously got a lot of press. Interestingly enough, I'm not even sure if it's FDA approved for COVID. I think the only FDA approved COVID drug is remdesivir. You can double check that. Um, but Decadron is, is the most widely used steroid, but we're also using Medrol dose pack. A lot of people are using just Solumedrol we're finding to be very effective. I don't think it really matters the type of steroid per se. Uh, dexamethasone seems to me to me to be the, the best one, uh, but you know the other ones haven't had a uh, positive randomized trial, but in the meta-analyses, they're showing benefit as well. So I, I don't know if it's just a decadron, but bottom line, this is an anti-inflammatory, and it, de- <coughs> it decreases the inflammation, which will you know blunt the cytokine response, which is actually at the core of of breaking that barrier, the capillary alveoli barrier is really broken because of that of that inflammatory milieu that the steroids block. And I mean that's the the key part. It it's it's stopping the storm in that way. Is that what you're saying? 
it's yeah it, it there's that there's a storm there and it's almost it gets to a point where it's irreversible but if you start it early enough you could really stop the the expulsion of proteins where they're not supposed to be they're not supposed to be in that airway that alveolus it needs to be clean and that steroid is is able to block that um, expulsion of, of protein into that airway and so if a 50 year old um, comes down with COVID and he calls his internist and says you know I got COVID um, you know currently they what they tell you is how about some Tylenol and um, you know, keep yourself lots of fluids and rest. Should we be saying to the internist, uh, look, how, how do I get that monoclonal antibodies? Do you recommend uh, some of these steroids? Um, should I go for the remdesivir? What do you recommend? And so what, I rec- what would yeah. you recommend to that 50-odd-year-old? Well, a 50-odd-year-old, uh, I would recommend looking at that history. Uh, believe it or not, still – Tons of the primary care doctors that I work, not here, in other places, have not even heard of the monoclonal antibodies, which is, so you really need to uh, talk with a pulmonologist, a local pulmonologist, to make sure that you're really being offered whatever you could be offered. And remdesivir is, uh, has some good data. And if you need to be admitted, remember, you can't get that yet as an outpatient. So you would consider being admitted early. Any therapy given early is going to be more efficacious than later on. So on one hand, if you're mildly ill and you feel like you're okay and your saturation is a little low and it's day eight, yes, your primary might call in a little steroid trial, but he could easily call in for you to be admitted and and be formally treated and evaluated in the emergency room. Most emergency rooms are very good at doing a little walk test to see if you desaturate uh, below 91, 92%, then you qualify for admission and those advanced therapies. Okay, let's um, let's talk about vaccines a second. Um, Aria, you mentioned to me in the past that you recently got vaccinated. Um, do you have a vaccine preference? Um, did you experience any side effects? And have you talked to your staff? Are the other hospital workers you're working with getting vaccinated, or is there just very little buy-in from the nurses uh, who you work with? Yeah, I think overall, and and not speaking about Mount Sinai specifically, because I'm not going to talk about our hospital, but overall, speaking to doctors in general, there is definitely buy-in to get vaccinated. Um, I don't have a definite preference between Pfizer versus Moderna. I think they're both excellent. And the good news is Fauci just announced that the J&J and AstraZeneca will probably be available within a couple weeks. So you'll have more, right. uh, you'll have more things to look forward to. I can tell you that the younger you are, the more likely you are going to have symptoms. For instance, I have my second shot and I'm 46 years old and I could not get out of bed for a day, and I had pain in my arm. But I actually took that as a blessing. Um, Hopefully hopefully that means I had an immunologic response. Um, There are going to be side effects, as long as you're okay with the side effects. That's good. A lot of the nurses in other places I know have not taken it because they're young, and a lot of them are childbearing age, and they want to make sure that that the vaccine is safe before they do it. I am a believer that they study thousands of patients 
in the in the trials, and it has been demonstrably safe. I think the faster we get it, the faster we get to some sort of herd immunity, especially healthcare workers, I believe, should be taking vaccines. Um, you recommend um, that COVID patients uh, uh, use Listerine uh, afterwards uh, to reduce transmission. Um, do you want to, I, I don't think many people have talked about the role of Listerine or use of a neti pot to reduce transmission. Could you just spend a second on that topic? Yeah, it's great because it's an easy, easy thing and it could really save people. There are actually articles about it. You could look in the Journal of Medical Virology. They talk about um, using mouthwashes, different gargles. That, that's actually a study on Listerine. I think the author's name is Rena Cass and Craig Myers. You can Google it. But it's a fascinating, easy thing that anybody can do is do a Listerine mouthwash, gargle for 30 seconds, two or three times a day. It, because coronavirus lives in the back of the throat. They replicate in the back of your oropharynx. So it makes sense that if you could try to decrease at least maybe some of the viral load, that could decrease the transmission. So anybody who is positive, I always recommend to their family members to decrease the household transmission to take Listerine. A more controversial topic is actually iodine rinses, which I personally do myself, but there's also articles on uh, iodine rinse. It's by um, Samantha Frank. You could look at it. It's in JAMA, uh, Head and Neck Surgery. They looked at iodine rinses and the rapid inactivation of SARS. You could look it up uh, for antiseptic. It's not been a randomized double-blind study, but it decreases viral load. I've been doing that for, for eight months. I do iodine rinses personally, but it's based on there is literature showing that it has in vitro this, uh, killing of the, of the virus. Perfect. All right, Ari, thank you. Thank um, you. Yeah, great. Um, all right, so the show is going to uh, move to a completely different topic, and that is uh, the role of experts and elites uh, and their battle with uh, the public. Our first speaker is going to be Martin Gurry, and we're going to follow him with Bill Eastry right away, and then we're going to go to questions and answers with the two of them. Uh, Martin Gurry is a former CIA agent who specializes in politics and global media. He is currently a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and he is the author of the controversial The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. Martin, please go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so I have six minutes. I'm going to give you six minutes of the chief predicament of our moment in history. Fortunately, you already know the symptoms. If you watch those strange-looking people sack and loot the Capitol building, you understand my theme. I'm talking about the eruption of public anger against the established order, against politics as they're actually conducted, and against society as it actually exists. I'm talking about a conflict that pits the public, ordinary people, against the elites who manage the great institutions of the modern world, a conflict that is everywhere in society and global in scope. In 2019, I counted at least 25 major street insurgencies around the world. What I found most remarkable was that these insurgencies struck at, at the poorest countries, Sudan, but also the wealthiest, France in dictatorships like, like Algeria, but also in strong democracies like Chile's. 
The revolt of the public is not just about economic deprivation. It's not just a cry for democracy. So what's going on? When I was a young analyst of global media at CIA, my job was pretty straightforward. The volume of open information was at trickle. Then, around the turn of the century, things went haywire. A digital earthquake propelled a tsunami of information in volumes that were unprecedented in human experience, and that's not just a phrase. The information produced in 2001 doubled, doubled that of all previous history, going back to the dawn of culture. 2002 doubled 2001. This trajectory has continued. If you chart it, the line really does look like a gigantic wave, a tsunami. Now, information has effects. It changes minds. As the tsunami rolled around the world behind it, I could see ever-increasing levels of social and political turbulence. This wave of trouble began to crest in 2011 with the, uh, the sadly misnamed Arab Spring. In January, a young Egyptian called Wael Ghanim posted on Facebook an invitation to a protest in Cairo's Tahrir Square. One million users saw the invitation. 100,000 said they would attend. Three weeks after that initial protest, Hosni Mubarak, dictator for 30 years, was gone. So back to the question, what's going on? Evidently, digital platforms have allowed the public to leap on the political stage and become a leading actor there. But the public is many, not one. Online culture fractures opinion like a fallen mirror, and the public lives on the broken pieces. In the 20th century, radical groups wanted to conquer power so that they could impose a political program based on, on some ideology. Today, the public is indifferent to power and openly rejects organization, leaders, positive programs, and coherent ideologies. It's too fractured. It can unite and mobilize only in the act of repudiation. The public is always against. It strikes at the ruling institutions without offering alternatives. Push to the logical conclusion, this dissent and nihilism, the belief that destruction is a form of progress. The flip side of the revolt of the public is a crisis of authority. The great institutions of the 21st century, government, media, and so forth, received their shape in the 20th. That was the heyday of the top-down, I talk, you listen, model of organizing humanity. Turns out that for this model to be tolerated as legitimate, as legitimate it has to enjoy uh, um, a semi-monopoly over information in every domain. At that time, information was terribly scarce, which made it extremely valuable. The institutions that controlled the flow of information were vested with authority. They, they could tell ordinary persons, top-down, what the important uh, public issues were and often how to think about them. The information tsunami has simply swept away the legitimacy of this model. The elites who run the system are totally demoralized for good reason. They know that their every mistake, misjudgment, failed prediction, self-interested move, sexual escapade will be exposed and talked about endlessly. The day elite failure sets the information agenda. One more symptom of this conflict is, is populism. The rise of politicians who exploit the hunger for repudiation for their own ends. 
populists like Donald Trump are often portrayed as demagogues who manipulate a gullible public by means of, for example, uh, fake news. I incline to the opposite theory. Populists are merely clubs in the hands of an angry public used to bash at the institutions. If they are unwilling or unable to play that part, they will be discarded, fake news or not. The revolt of the public, as I understand it, is aimed at the hierarchical structure of modern government. As such, without much regard to the political system, the public moves online at the speed of light and can't understand why the elites remain uh, sconced in, in their mobile pyramids. There's no question that government in the digital age can be flatter and faster or that the elites have absolutely no intention of allowing this to happen. The consequences of, of, of this tectonic collision played out in Capitol Hill on January 6th, an almost laboratory-perfect example of the revolt of the public interacting with our crisis of authority. Thank you. All right, that was something. All right, so um, we'll come right back to you, Martin, in the Q&A after Bill speaks. Um, Our next speaker is Bill Easterly. He is a professor of economics at NYU, and he is the author of The Tyranny of Experts uh, and the Forgotten Rights of the Poor. All right, um, Bill, why don't you take it away? Bill, you're still on mute. I can't hear you. Here I am. Thanks, Larry. Good. Perfect. There's a district called Mubende in Uganda. On uh, Sunday morning of February 28, 2010, the farmers of Mubende were in church, and they heard gunshots outside. They came out, and they found that soldiers were burning their homes, and the soldiers kept the farmers at gunpoint from rescuing their homes. The soldiers burned the recent grain harvest of the farmers, and shot their dairy cows. Then the soldiers marched the more than 20,000 farmers away at gunpoint, and they were told, never come back. This land is no longer yours. Now, what's surprising about this story is that it was part of a World Bank project to grow forests, to replace the subsistence farming that was going on in Mubende, and then sell the timber, which World Bank experts thought would be a higher productivity use of this land. Did not turn out to be higher productivity for the Mubende farmers who lost their land. The farmers might have hoped that publicity would help them. The story actually appeared a few months later on the front page of the New York Times. And the World Bank was momentarily embarrassed and promised an investigation. Well, it's now 11 years later and that investigation never happened. I heard about this story at the time. It's one of the things that motivated me to write The Tyranny of Experts. The problem here is that World Bank experts told the poor residents of Mubende, Uganda, what they should want, forestry, rather than respecting what they actually do want, farming. The kind of economics I was taught is that if forestry was such a miracle cure, the first question to ask is why were the farmers of Mubende not already doing forestry? And when we impose solutions by force, on poor residents of the developing world, we lose that insight. World Bank experts went ahead, even though they knew their recommendations would be imposed 
or could well have been imposed by force as actually happening, violating the forgotten rights of the poor. Now I could give you 300 pages of historical and modern evidence that respecting rights for the poor is actually the best recipe to end poverty. That a combination of property rights and choosing for yourself in markets, including the ability to protest politically when those rights are violated is the recipe that has worked for many rich countries around the world. So I will direct you to the 300 pages to check that out. What's a little more novel that I want to argue that is not usually recognized is that in development discussions is that we really should think of choice as good in itself, regardless of whether it increases prosperity or not. Economists have long evaluated well-being based on individual choice. If I choose B over A, then economists will say B must make me better off because I chose it, because I voluntarily chose it, and who better than me to know what is best for me than me? If instead I was coerced to choose B over A, then I could actually infer, we could actually infer that I am made worse off because coercion would not have been necessary if I had thought I was going to be made better off. So why are aid agencies supporting the violation of the property rights of the poor? Unfortunately, things have not only been going in the wrong direction for many decades in development, they're going even more in the wrong direction in the last 20 years. Aid over the last 20 years has increased the most to governments that violate property rights, repress democracy, and control markets the most. And not by a little bit. The worst force of governments ranked on those dimensions at a 300% increase in annual average foreign aid received in the new millennium, while annual aid for everyone else increased by 35%. So it's simply no contest. The aid agencies, for some reason, that we will talk about more in the Q&A, seem to be choosing a path in which they increasingly violate more the rights of the poor and give the, their own experts, the World Bank experts, the power to impose solutions on the poor by allying themselves with autocratic regimes that will impose solutions by force. So I want you to have three takeaways from this talk. Number one, and this one is a fairly conventional debate, which I'm happy to have, that choosing for yourself is actually the best way to end poverty and create prosperity. The second is more novel, and this is one I frankly care about a lot more. But choosing for yourself is a good thing in itself. But none of us really wants to be told that we are better off by somebody else. We want to decide for ourselves when we are better off. That has long been the tradition of economic thinking since the times of Adam Smith into the 20th century. That's the kind of welfare economics that I was taught and how we evaluate whether people are better off. We just ask them, we just let them choose. And the third point I want you to take away is that sadly, foreign aid, as it has worked out, and even more in recent years, often empowers experts to force on poor people what the experts think they should want instead of what poor people actually do want. So in economic development efforts, if I can quote one of my heroes, Abraham Lincoln, with a slight paraphrase, maybe in economic development, it's also time to have a new birth of freedom so that development of the people, for the people, and by the people does not perish from the earth. All right.
Bill, I'm going to start with you, and then we'll bring Barton into the conversation. Um, why is the World Bank um, doing this? Why, um, why are they supporting autocrats more than uh, with the worst human rights abuses as a place to provide their aid? Um, I mean, historically, U.S. aid specifically has been um, limited by you know human rights violations uh, or the context of what, how would it help American foreign policy. Why are we giving all these money to these autocrats? What's driving this? So I'll give you a bureaucratic answer and a foreign policy answer. The uh, sort of the, the bureaucratic politics is that the World Bank simply wants to give as much aid as possible to keep itself in business. And so it, it literally wants to give, give aid to almost every poor country without discriminating. And so there are some egregious cases that it will not give aid like North Korea only because it's so egregious that it'd be simply embarrassing. But otherwise, the World Bank just wants to stay in business by giving every government, regardless of how much it is violating the rights of the poor, the aid that the World Bank needs to keep its own employees and its own mission in business. And of course, there are many good people that want to do good for poor people in those countries. So it has an altruistic backing as well, but it's sadly unrealistic about what the effect of the aid will actually be. The foreign policy reason is that Aid has often been not only about development, but also about the foreign policy goals of the US and the UK, for example. So one good reason why aid has gotten worse is that during the long war on terror and the wars on, in Afghanistan and Iraq and the wars in, in Africa against terrorists, uh, the, the World Bank has supported allies of the US government and allies of the UK government. So Uganda, for example, was providing troops to fight al-Shabaab in Somalia. And so the US policy, and of course the US chooses the president of the World Bank. So the US has plenty of levers by which to control the policy of the World Bank. So they really want the World Bank to support US allies. And the World Bank for its part, you know, it wants a lot of political backing for what it's doing. So it knows it can get political backing by cooperating with US foreign policy. So is the takeaway here that the failure um, of supporting these autocrats is somehow embedded in the U.S. foreign policy um, State Department's objectives? Because I would have thought that the State Department would have been very opposed to supporting a number of African autocrats, maybe with the exception of these Ugandans, but um, what am I missing there? Well, you're presuming, that I, you're presuming that the U.S. State Department is opposed to human rights violations. Is that what you're, what you're saying? Yeah, I guess so. You're saying that's not yeah, true. It's so, generally not true. Well, we'll be trying different. I mean, uh, oh, we're trying a different line of question because it sounds like that would answers itself. Um, okay. You you joined uh, as a guest at one of my book clubs probably 10 to 15 years ago for your the previous book that you wrote, uh, which was also a condemnation of the World Bank. And I went around the room and asked each uh, individual to decide would they. Um, cut to zero the amount of aid to the World Bank, cut it in half or keep it the same. And when I came to you, uh, you were very had much misgivings on the question. Um, and you said, I would, I guess I would keep the aid the same in the hope that it, uh, the World Bank could be reformed. It, it's been 15 years since I asked you that question. When I ask you it again, uh, what should we do about providing aid to the World Bank? Should we, get should we cut it? Should we cut it in half or should we keep it the same? 
Well, I, I'm proud, actually, uh, Larry, to be a reticent expert. I think there are too many experts that are overconfident on how they want to drastically change the world and are not cautious enough on how their, their ideas could cause harm instead of good. And I'm, I'm also cautious about that. I'm a hum, I want to be a humble expert rather than an overconfident one. I do have to admit in those 15 years, uh, I, I have mostly given up on the hope of reforming the aid agencies of the World Bank. So I guess I have to admit I'm a lot more negative now than I was 15 years ago. Okay. All right. With that, let's bring in Martin to the conversation. Um, mm -hmm. Martin, your last point related to the role of populists as not being leaders but followers of the angry public. Right. And um, Given that, um, how how do you expect the interaction between populists um, in the future to to behave? Um, is is it the populists found Trump, um, and should we expect the populists to find someone else who will represent them, or will someone a leader have to show up to engage the public? And how do we think about it in the context of the United States or France or the UK? or any other country, for that matter, that is a big one that we should be keeping our eyes open for? Yeah, well, every country is, of course, different, but, but the phenomena is, is remarkably similar. And a lot of it has to do with what Bill was talking about. I mean, I was just sitting here shaking my head in wonder. Um, it's not just the poor in Africa that get told by experts, you, this is the way you're supposed to be. I think that 20th century top-down model of democracy, which worked very well for many years, uh, because it had that semi-monopoly of information, was, uh, had an almost mystical belief in expertise and a mystical belief that they own scientific truth. Um, and that, that model it was very comfortable, I think, to, to um, if you were part of that expert class, part of that ruling class, it must have been quite wonderful. You spoke and nobody talked back. Uh, I think, to get at the populist question, um, we have to reform the options, the choices that the public gets. Uh, the public goes to a strange individual. I'm not going to pass political judgments. I don't think anybody, any, even a supporter of Donald Trump, would question this was a strange and, and, and bizarre individual who had no experience in, in any sort of politics or any sort of government service, um, only because the elites are not we're not presenting the options that the that the public wanted it was almost a a, a statement of okay this guy is weird enough that he cannot possibly be one of them i mean jair bolsonaro in brazil for example i mean he makes he makes trump sound uh, like an etiquette book okay i mean so i mean there there is a sense that the the public looks for these outrageous figures just to make sure he's not one of them right so what to do would be you have to provide you have to what exactly what bill was saying you have to listen to what the public is saying don't tell the public what they want listen to what the public is saying it wants and um and i, I if the, the moment you do this you break through the logjam and the moment the established parties for example can produce candidates that belong to that establishment and yet satisfy the, the, the options and the questions and the, the choices that the public wants, uh, the less populism we will have. Let's, uh, let's use some European countries as examples. Um, do you view Boris Johnson as a populist? 
Yeah, that's um, a good question. That's a really good question. I, I do. I do. But come on, he's he's been in politics his whole life. He he can orate in Greek, you know, in ancient Greek. Uh, this guy, he he's one of a kind, so probably we should treat him that way. But uh, yes, I do treat him as a, a populist because he took a stand with Brexit and when nobody else did in that political class. And uh, and uh, Brexit was clearly the populist issue in, in the UK, in England, I would say. And how would you view it in France? So when you look at the Macron election, there were four parties. Um, did you see a populist? Is, is the Le Pen example of a populist or is that just a far right example? How do you think about Fr- French politics? Yeah, okay. So uh, basically... When you look at that election, uh, the, the one that Macron won, his party was, was in a sense, the, the public's party, all right? He was a nobody. He, he follows the, um, uh, the pattern of many he was a He made Boris Johnson look massively experienced by comparison, all right? Um, he was now he had J.P. Morgan. <laughs> he, yeah, he had been... He had been uh, Right, he had been with Rothschild. He had been with uh, he had been a minister uh, for for a couple of years, um, and his party had just been created literally months before the first election. So that doesn't happen in France. Now, when he took over, he clearly took certain stands that were in his mind very centrist, but in the p- certain part of the public's mind, much more like the old stuff that they didn't want. I'd say populism in France, if you, the, the obvious um, you know, expression of it was the, those yellow vest um, uh, demonstrations. Before we get to the yellow vest, I totally I want to get there for one second. So yeah. you're absolutely right. Imagine this is almost inconceivable in the United States that mm-hmm. somehow a new party is created months before election, and not only does it win the presidency, but it also wins the Congress. I mean, just yeah, right. out of control, okay? Right. Just mind-boggling. But yeah. then when he comes to power, oh, my God, it's like the – he staffs it with all elites. He himself yep. is viewed as an elite from the great school. This is yep. not Donald Trump. This is, you know, power is with the elites. Um, it's an anti-populist party. Um, it, 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 I, but I, mean, I have to say, you know, in France... And then when the Yellow Jackets show up, it's like, who, they, who are these guys? And how dare they? Uh, right, right. I mean, that's exactly right. And that, I mean, I became a very popular figure in France. The French, you know, I, I love France and I, I read French and badly speak it um uh, but but i mean the french know their stuff they feel like they're a very unique country and they don't want anybody else to tell them what they had no idea what was happening to them when the yellow vest struck they they started inviting me over his party started inviting me over to talk to them to explain what was going on because they had no clue and and um uh it when you when you look at those yellow vest uh, protests and you look at the, their YouTube, uh, I mean, it's really kind of fascinating. I mean, they they have these little songs where they go, if you're a rich hippie, you you are a good guy, but if you are a plumber, you are a bad guy. I mean, it's, it's the exact same thing that you see here in the United States with with Trump. Is it's the idea that there's this class of rich. Uh, successful, globalized people who can work anywhere that are running the show and that don't, don't even understand the language you're speaking, much less give a hoot about what, what it is that's important to you. Um, so, and now they're having equal problems because they have mishandled uh, the whole COVID situation pretty terribly. 
Bill, I want to bring you back into the conversation. Um, last uh, two weeks ago, we had uh, Charles Goodhart uh, and Minaj Pradhan talk about their new book about um, Chinese demographics and how it will uh, change the inflationary context of the world. And I asked the question about um, the future role of Africa and the future role of India uh, to, br to bring online these billions of people into the world economy. And they were very pessimistic. And I think they were pessimistic because they thought that what China was successful was because they had top-down planning. And then India, because it's democratic and chaotic, um, they would be unsuccessful at t taking that next leap forward. And Africa would be a basket case because of the too many countries um, and a lack of property rights. How do you think about um, Chinese success as being a function of their top-down approach to problem solving? And in your framework, do you expect India to be successful or not? Yeah, so I think one of the greatest myths in economic development discussions is this idea of the benevolent autocrat. And we're very much too quick to give credit for a dynamic economy to whichever autocrat happens to be presiding over it at the moment. The evidence when you when you check that idea doesn't doesn't support that. Oh, sorry, my dog just came in. No problem. <laughs> my dog wants to participate in the discussion. Um, and so, you know, what is going on with China? I mean, the most what is the most important thing that happened with China it was the spread of economic freedom after Deng Xiaoping reluctantly let it open up in the late 1980s and continuing ever since then. Now partially reversed uh, a little bit by, by Xi, but, um, which of course coincided with the slowing down of growth. But the biggest story is simply that, that there was a massive expansion of economic freedom and the role of markets and the role of people choosing for themselves and a massive increase in participation in the global economy and in international trade. And what was the result is very rapid growth from a, the, the previous extreme poverty under a Stalinist central planning model to a much greater level of prosperity under a market economy. That's the big story. And everything else kind of pales by comparison with that. So um, maybe Martin, just to bring you in on, on the mm -hmm. China top-down solution, um, here you have a, a, a group of elites trying to control both the public information um, and how that's disseminated. Um, it seems in your framework that that sort of uh, slow adaptation, uh, centralized power is particularly at risk. Well, I mean, um, I, I don't know what you mean by that. Explain, explain a bit. In other words, um, they have no ability to change the populace to control. They have no um, they're, they're desperately trying to both control information um, right. and prevent reforms. Um, right. And all they have to, all they can do is, you know, banish people off Facebook. But is, is that a loser? Uh, can totally. they control information? Can they control dissent? Um, no, and and no. And uh, I think one of the truly fascinating things is uh, watching our elite. Some of them not that old okay these some of these are are gen x uh type uh leaders who essentially want to go back to the 20th century they want nothing to do with the 21st um within that group i think uh to, to 
I once again agree violently with what Bill said, um, there is this kind of um, sneaky admiration for what the Chinese are doing, right? Uh, sure. I, I, I don't think I don't think this necessarily people who want to overthrow the government and set up a similar system. I don't I don't see how you could. Uh, that the system is so one off. But there is, you know, in little statements that are made about well, the Chinese are better at this. The Chinese, you know, they've conquered. COVID, because Chinese COVID numbers, who the heck knows what they are, right? I mean, it, this is a country that essentially um, uh, cooks the numbers on everything it does. So, um, but, but there is, to our own elites, this admiration of, they, they think that they themselves, the Chinese, uh, don't have this, this fear of the public and can just kind of point a gun and say, do it. But the reality is, when you look what's happening in Hong Kong, is that even in China, there's trouble with uh, controlling the public, when the public really wants to make a statement on the streets. Um, I think what's kept them going is, is they have been tremendously successful um, uh, economically. I have talked to many, many Chinese who hated the system but told me things like, well, my grandfather lived with pigs in a hut, mm-hmm. and I'm going to Harvard. You know, So why should I want to rock the boat? Uh, so, but all it takes is for that economy to take a bad tumble and wait and see. And Martin, do you, do you have any predictions as to what your framework means for both the elites and uh, governments? Does it mean that we're going to see – you started with this, you know, how fragile the Arab world was in terms of uh, the, the Arab Spring and how they, they fell down. Do you see similar concerns um, among governments in Europe um, or other important allies of ours? Who, who, is, who is more at risk, the more open societies, the more closed ones? Um, how, do you, how do you think about that? Pro- or do you well, think it's going to be more of the same and that elites will just adapt to this uh, revolt of the public? Once, once again, I, I, I will cite my new hero, Bill Lesterly, and say, no, of course, of course, the, the open societies are, are much more flexible and much more adaptable than uh, uh, authoritarian governments. Um, I, I, I don't do predictions. Uh, again, citing my, the same person, is, we need to be humble about predictions. You want to be wrong? Make a forecast, okay? Um, mm-hmm. how, however, um, it's, hard, it's, hard I, 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 it's hard to be an expert <laughs> that in, in this world to be when you're being humble, Martin. <laughs> Not easy. Too true, too true. Um, but, but, I mean, I think the, the most important question that nobody seems to be asking right now is, okay, as I said, in 2019 we had, this, I mean, that, that wave, that cycle of protests that began in 2011 was cresting. Just cresting. It was incredible to watch. All right, it was everywhere in the world, and it was it was pretty uh, pretty powerful. And then we put this lid, this this lid of a quarantine that is the most, as somebody said, you know, the the, the greatest, most thorough global quarantine in the history of the human race. And in about no more than a year plus, that lid is going to blow. It's probably blowing already, for all we know, right? And what's the public going to want? when it comes out? Uh, and I have no answer. I mean, I think one possible um, possibility is that it's going to be, 
you know, it's got to come out with all the repressed anger and frustration and rage and think you people really messed up this, this COVID thing and you're going to get revolt on steroids. Equally possible, honestly, the way I'm feeling right now, which is, you know, just give me my vaccine and I'm off to, to have fun, right? You get the roaring 2020s or something like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but nobody seems to be asking this question. It is probably the most important one in politics today. So we had uh, Chris Arnotti speak on the call in March, and he said, oh, my God, if we quarantine three generations of a family in a, in a small living space, um, these, there's, people can get hurt, and there's going to be an explosion. We're just we're getting a powder keg. Um, and then we had you know, the Black Lives Movement going on, and there was uh, right. a lot of demonstrations nationally. Uh, and globally, for that matter, on a variety right. of topics. Um, why do you think we, we heated up and then cooled back down? Uh, yeah, th- those, those, things, those things are very random. There's no specific, I mean, you know, there are issues that lie dormant for years, and you can see that there are people trying to make a case out of them, and nobody's paying attention. And suddenly one thing happens, and for many, many, it's like viral messages. You know, you can you can make all kinds of rules about what makes a viral message, and I actually studied that, and I studied it in CIA and afterwards. But then you can take those same, same damn rules mm-hmm. and you apply them to probably a million other messages that didn't go viral. So I, I can't begin to tell you why that happened. Uh, it, all I can tell you is that the, the potential for that is simmering uh, at a very high level of intensity uh, underneath that lid that's been placed in COVID. Whether it's going to explode politically, whether it's going to explode in party mode, and, and I would just want to get to work and, and make up all the money that I lost while, while all this happened. Who knows? Who knows? But we should be thinking about it. I, I think your point is like who knew um, when the Arab Spring started that it would be that fruit merchant in Tunis that would kickstart yeah. this whole thing? Totally, totally true. I mean, that's a perfect example. I wonder if I could ask someone want to say something? Go ahead, David. Is that you? Go ahead. Yes, yes. Um, I, I, um, I, I wonder what, what our two speakers uh, would, would make of this. Um, uh, Bill's argument is essentially that uh, the free market and people operating kind of within it will come up with good information about, uh, about development. But um, in the case of the, the, the lots of new media and a free market in, in, in the media, in many parts of the world, it seems to be throwing up very bad information. That's to say, it it um, it, it, it is uh, a, a, it seems a massive generator of fake news. I mean, is is the answer that, um, that, that there's something missing in, in in Bill's theory, or, or or is it that in the United States and in 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 Western Europe and many other parts of the world, we don't in fact have a have a free media, and it's quite wrong to see what we see on the internet. As, as the product of the of the grassroots, and it's rather the product of of very particular interests uh, who 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 can control um, in 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 many many ways the the, the kind of things that, that appears. In other words, is it partly the strength of the old the old media kind of reproduced uh, through through new media, or is it new kinds of of um, control of of of, uh, of of information using the new media? Well, that's in other words, is, 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 yeah. is populism uh, uh, um, not the right way to understand what's what's 
what's been going on. That's to say that we 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 have kind of elite forces um, uh, mobilising particular segments of the of, of the population using old and new media. Can I answer? Or, that? You want to take that first? Yeah. No. That is a very comforting theory that the elites tell themselves, which is behind all this craziness, all these crazy people, there is an elite figure that's manipulating it all. That's very comforting to the elites. I have seen no evidence of that, honestly. I mean, in cases like Donald Trump's, obviously he's out there stirring the pot. Um, but most, including the people that support him, uh, most of the uh, movements that I've seen, both with street protests and with the election of populists, um, these are bottom-up eruptions. Uh, and they have to do with precisely uh, breaking the, the mold that the elites want to maintain very, very intact. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I hear this again and again, and I have, I have people that, I mean, and there's a lot of data on this, by the way. I mean, it's a lot of data that, for example, the fake news in 2016 had, there was, was there any? Oh yeah, lots. Uh, did the Russians meddle? I mean, I'm CIA. Of course they meddle. They always do. Um, did it change a single mind? Um, I have seen no evidence of that. Okay. I have seen no evidence of that. So, um, it, the fact that things uh, and and I would dispute the the premise, which is that information is bad. There's a lot of information out there. What's missing is not good or bad. There's lots of good information out there. What's missing is authority. What's missing is a person that we jointly turn to, and and when that person says, or an institution obviously says, okay, this is these are this is reality. This is the way we see truth right now. Um, we all say, okay, well, that's, that source has spoken. Now we have agreed. That. That's, what, that's what authority is. Truth is not some platonic form. It's not a gift from science. It's basically something we receive from an authority. And, and um, when authorities have exploded, um, truth is up for grabs. So, yeah, I, let, me agree, let me agree with my new friend, Martin. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you're worried about the problem of fake news, fake news has always been around and has always been horrible, most horribly, horrifically severe in authoritarian societies. You know, if you want to look at places where hatreds and conspiracy theories are rife, you know, just look at any authoritarian society where journalists are in the pay of authoritarian elite actors. So more freedom is the answer to better information. Not, it's not the problem, it's the answer to better information. Let me also say something I think Martin will be, agree with. That I think, I think you're least, disagreeing with each other. You're not agreeing. <laughs> we are okay, okay, whatever. <laughs> uh, I, I think elites actually make the problem worse by saying, by telling the public, here's what I think, here's what you should think. You know, and we've gone from you know, persuasion, which was the basis of freedom of this freedom of speech to kind of dictation, you know, this is what you should think. And that's what causes elites to lose trust in the in the mainstream media sources, I think. If I could add one last thing, uh, we, we spoke about uh, France and the yellow vests, uh, the leader of uh, the, the ruling party there on March, Macron's party, uh, was asked what's going on. And he said, I think our policies are too intelligent and too subtle for the public to understand. That tells you everything you need to know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. 
With that, we're going to change tacks and bring in our final speaker. Uh, that's Alan Abramowitz. Uh, he is the Alan Barkley Professor of Political Science at Emory. And I've asked Alan to do a, a post-mortem analysis of the Georgia Senate race, um, or to the two runoffs, I should say. Alan, if, if you're on the line, uh, please go ahead. Thank you. I'm here. Uh, so I'm going to start off by saying that I think that there are two perspectives that are important for understanding the results of the Senate runoff elections in Georgia, a short-term perspective and a longer-term perspective. The short-term perspective focuses on how Democrats flipped the results between the November election and the runoff elections in January. A longer-term perspective focuses on the factors that have shifted Georgia from a solidly Republican state as recently as 2012 to now a, clearly a swing state in 2020. So let me talk first about the short-term forces that were responsible for flipping the results of the two Senate elections. In January, David, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in November, David Perdue fell just short of winning a majority of the vote and led John Ossoff by almost two percentage points or about 90,000 votes. Likewise, uh, the Republican candidates in the special election, Kelly Loeffler and the others, combined to receive more votes <clears throat> than Raphael Warnock and the other Democratic candidates. Warnock finished first in a large field, but if you just add together all the Republican and Democratic votes, there are actually more Republican votes. So it might have led you to expect Republicans would have the advantage going into the runoff. In January, however, Ossoff defeated Purdue by a margin of just over one percentage point, about 55,000 votes, and Warnock defeated Leffler by a margin of about two percentage points, or about 93,000 votes. So um, a swing of uh, about three percentage points in margin, uh, which produced a very dramatic change in outcome. The keys to Ossoff's and Warnock's victories in January were a tremendous turnout by Democratic voters in the runoff. So turnout was remarkably strong across the entire state. About 89% of turnout in the general election, which is off the charts for a runoff election. In fact, 60% of eligible voters in Georgia voted in the runoff, which was a higher turnout than we had in the 2016 presidential election. So that tells you just how high the turnout was. But turnout was greater in Democratic strongholds. Uh, looking across some of the counties in Georgia, in the strongest Democratic counties, turnout was about 93% of the November turnout. In the strongest Republican counties, it was only about 87%. That's still very, very high. Close to 180,000 new voters turned out for the runoff um, who did not vote in the November election, which is also remarkable. And we're quite confident that those new voters went decisively for the Democratic candidates. So what we saw here was that Trump, uh, him, uh, Trump and the Biden victory in the presidential election energized Democrats. Um, so I think it was less a story of Republicans being uh, turned off than it was a story of Democrats being very turned on. The longer term picture is that there are forces that have shifted Georgia from a solidly red state only a few years ago, only about 10 or 12 years ago, to clearly a purple state now. And I can't understand what happened in the runoff elections without understanding these longer-term forces that are driving uh, political change in the state of Georgia. 
One of those long-term forces is demographic change. Uh, there is a growing non-white share of the Georgia population and electorate, as there is in many parts of the country, but it's happening a little more rapidly in Georgia than it is in, uh, in many other places. Most of, this, most of this growth in the non-white population is concentrated in metro Atlanta, especially uh, suburbs of metro Atlanta like Gwinnett and Cobb that are the second and third most populous counties in the state. Under Stacey Abrams' leadership, Democrats have invested a great deal of effort in registering and turning out these non-white voters. And they're not just African-American voters, they're increasingly Latino voters and Asian-American voters as well who are uh, becoming a growing, a larger share of the Georgia electorate. But this is a gradual shift. According to exit polls, there was actually little change in the racial makeup of the Georgia electorate between 2016 and 2020. The proportions of white, African-American, and other non-white voters were virtually identical in those two elections. So what else changed between these two elections? The point I want to really emphasize here is that the single most important factor contributing to the shift between 2016 and 2020 that really set up the outcome of the runoff elections was the growing Democratic share of the white vote, which went from 21% in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was running to 25% in 2018 when Stacey Abrams was running for governor to 30% in 2020 for Joe Biden and for the Democratic Senate candidates as well. That increase in the white share, uh, of the Democratic share of the white vote alone explains the difference between losing Georgia by just over five points in 2016 and narrowly winning the state in 2020. And this is also largely why the Atlanta suburbs flipped so quickly from red to blue. Uh, and with those Atlanta suburbs flipping, the state flipped. So my conclusion is that if you're trying to understand the longer-term trend here, particularly since 2016, I believe that doubling down on conservative small-town rural voters has cost Republicans big time in the Atlanta suburbs, and that is the main reason why Donald Trump lost Georgia, and that is the main reason why David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler lost Georgia in the runoff elections. Excellent. All right, lots of meat on that bone to go after. Let's see. Um, let's start with um, kind of a, 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 some background history on, on Georgia. I guess there's really nothing about Georgia that doesn't change. I looked recently up um, what happened in the 1960 election in Georgia, and I think Kennedy won Georgia versus Nixon by over 30 points. So, you know, here are states that it goes from being a, a very much of a Democratic state. Um, right. You know, I, I don't think the Republicans, I'm, sh I'm sure they won in uh, 72, but, um, you know, yes, Carter won Georgia in 76. I imagine he won it in 80. Um, yeah. And I don't know if, if Bill Clinton won it in, in 92 or not, but um, Georgia seems to be a, a, a state that's constantly changing. How do you think about, um, is it was just a mistake that we political scientists thought that, you know, Georgia would always be red or is it always changing and we just took a false, a false sense of security in that? Well, I think the, the, the shift that we saw from 
Georgia being a safe democratic state in the 1950s and into the 1960s, except when Barry Goldwater ran in 1964, um, you know, this, this was the traditional one-party South. Uh, and, and the Democratic Party continued to dominate politics in Georgia below the presidential level for many years, even after the 1960s. It wasn't really until the 1980s and 90s that we began to see Republicans winning many elected offices in Georgia. But that transformation was taking place pretty much across the region. Uh, Bill Clinton did uh, win a narrow victory in Georgia in 1992. That was a time when in order to win a presidential election in any southern state, the Democrats had to nominate a moderate to conservative white candidate like Bill Clinton. From the South. Uh, from, from the South, exactly. From the South, just like Jimmy Carter, of course, being a native Georgian, had an additional advantage. Um, so it wasn't until 2008 with Barack Obama came within five points in Georgia, it began, we began to notice that, that things were changing in Georgia. Uh, and that was a reflection of largely the growing uh, mobilization of African-American voters. So, of course, in 2008, we saw a tremendous surge in turnout across the board, but especially among African-American voters uh, to support Barack Obama. Uh, but, you know, that wasn't enough to put the Democrats over the top. You had to have this other ingredient that had to happen, uh, and that was the uh, transformation of the white electorate in Georgia. Now, the white electorate in Georgia is still quite conservative and still strongly Republican. It's just not as Republican as it used to be. And this is similar to the transformation that we saw in Virginia uh, that occurred earlier, uh, where the state went uh, over a period of eight years from being a fairly safe Republican state to now, of course, we've gotten to the point where it's considered a fairly safe Democratic state. Georgia's not there yet. Uh, it may get there in another four to eight years. That remains to is be Virginia, seen. Just a second, just to back up on Virginia. I think of Virginia as, as sort of like two states. Um, I'll call it the D.C. Um, MSA and kind of like the rest. Right. Um, and with, the difference here is is that, you know, all those people who work for the government, I mean, like, D.C. is like 93% Democratic and or 96% Democratic, something ridiculous amount. And everyone who works mm -hmm. for the government is kind of very pro, uh, is quite blue. But then when, as soon as you leave that D.C. MSA, you know, you've got this incredibly deep red breast of state, but the, the, uh, I'll call it the D.C. MSA section of the state is growing much faster mm -hmm. than the, the yeah. other areas. But you don't have a D.C. MSA in Georgia. You do have Atlanta. Yeah, so, so, so first of all, the, the story about Virginia isn't quite accurate. Um, yes, Northern Virginia is a big part of the story. It's not the only part of the story there. So you've also seen uh, growing Democratic strength in the other metro areas uh, of, of, of Virginia. Uh, the Richmond metro area has become more Democratic. The, uh, the Norfolk, Virginia Beach area and some of the other smaller metros in Virginia have also been part of the story there. But yes, Northern Virginia was uh, crucial and it remains you know, and it's been growing in size relative to the rest of the state. So do we have something comparable to that in Georgia? Yes, we do. It's Metro Atlanta. So Metro Atlanta has been growing faster than other parts of the state, and it's been changing politically rapidly. In fact, many of the small town and rural parts of Georgia are not growing very much at all. Uh, sure. Some of them are losing population. Um, Georgia is the engine that I mean, Atlanta is the engine that drives the economy of, of Georgia. We're getting a lot of people moving in, uh, uh, white, 
black, Hispanic, Asian, all sorts of people going into metro Atlanta, and that's driving this transformation uh, of politics, not only in metro Atlanta, but in the state. I, I like to use two counties as uh, the best example of how Georgia has changed over the last eight years. Uh, if you take Cobb and Gwinnett counties, uh, those are two suburban counties. They are the second and third most populous counties in the state. In 2012, they voted for Mitt Romney over Barack Obama by double-digit margins, both of those counties. In 2016, Hillary Clinton carried both of them narrowly. In 2020, Joe Biden carried both of those counties by double-digit margins. And in the runoff election, actually, uh, Gwinnett voted for the two Democratic Senate candidates by a margin of 20 percentage points. So that is just a remarkable transformation that reflects both growing diversity, but also, as I said, the fact that the white electorate in these areas has been alienated from the Democratic Party under Donald Trump. And has, you know, we've seen college, and these are areas of high education, they have moved toward the Democrats very rapidly. Uh, going back to African-American demographics for a second. So uh, I'm from Chicago, uh, and Chicago has been referred to as the black metropolis. Um, over the last 15 years or so, uh, African-Americans have been leaving uh, Chicago in droves. Uh, we've averaged 10,000, uh, net 10,000 decline in population of African-Americans each year. Um, we're pretty much at the point now where we have more Hispanics in Chicago than we do have African-Americans. And mm-hmm. when you look at the demographic results, the number one place that they're going is Atlanta. Um, mm-hmm. And to what extent, um, and not to suggest that Chicago is even the number one place where uh, people are coming from to Atlanta, but uh, African-Americans mm-hmm. from all over are, are, I think, establishing the new black metropolis is the Atlanta MSA. Um, mm-hmm. How do you think about African-American demographics, and will this be the driver for the state? Politically. Well, it's obviously very important. Um, yes, we're seeing uh, African-American in-migration uh, into uh, metro Atlanta, not so much the city of Atlanta, by the way, which has also become uh, had a, now has a smaller percentage of African-Americans than it used to. The city of Atlanta uh, itself is now major, majority uh, minority African-American. So, uh, but where you're seeing the growth in the African-American population is largely in the suburban counties surrounding uh, uh, Atlanta. Uh, and yet, when we look at the composition of the electorate and the African-American share of the electorate, so far at least, it really hasn't increased that much. Um, it's been hovering around 30 percent. That's still obviously very large and crucial for any Democratic candidate. Um, but it was 30 percent in 2008, and it was about 30 percent again in 2020. In fact, the exit poll estimates for the presidential race showed that the African-American share of voters at only 28 percent. Then it inched up in the runoffs, which was very important for Ossoff and Warnock. The African-American share inched up to about 31 percent in in the runoffs. So turning out African-American voters clearly was crucial to winning those two runoff elections. But again, I I would still say that the uh, ability of Democratic candidates, including an African-American candidate uh, and a very progressive white candidate who happens to be Jewish, to win 30 percent of the white vote in Georgia is truly remarkable. Um, and maybe as a final thought um, on Georgia, you seem to be suggesting that Trump's uh, angle in Georgia, which was to kind of get the rural voter all excited, do you think that the Republican Party will adapt to re-engage 
uh, with the conservative suburban voter or um, like Virginia is 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 state of Georgia heading blue? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that is a great question. You can learn. Uh, you know? And, and, and um, in the short term, I think it's going to be difficult for the Republicans in, in, uh, in Georgia to really adapt to this changing reality because they're, they're sort of stuck in this. They've, they've sort of painted themselves into this corner with Trump. Now, of course, you know that, that, that Trump has uh, been attacking the Republican leadership in the state. Uh, he, you know, he t- attacking both the governor and the secretary of state uh, as part of his campaign to try to overturn the election results. Um, but we did see the two Senate candidates, uh, both Kelly Loeffler uh, and then David Perdue, align themselves very closely with Trump. Um, they, there was just they would refuse to put any distance between themselves and Trump. They even uh, called for the resignation of the Republican secretary of state who uh, would not go along with, with Trump's efforts to overturn the election results. So I think there's going to be a battle for the soul of the Republican Party in this state, as there will be across the country, uh, to see whether the Trumpist forces are able to remain in command or whether we're going to see a return to something uh, resembling uh, sort of the pre, pre-Trump, uh, still very conservative, um, but a, a sort of a different brand of, uh, of conservatism, uh, than, than what we've seen o- o- over the last four years. And, and I think in 2022, is going to be very interesting in Georgia. We have the, the governor and secretary of state and all statewide elected officials are up. Uh, and, and right now, the party's very divided, and Democrats smell blood. Now, it'll be a midterm election with a Democrat in the White House, so uh, usually those don't go well for the president's party. But um, the condition the Republican Party is in in Georgia right now, I think, is giving Democrats hope that they can extend this uh, trend uh, beyond 2020. Okay. Um, with that, uh, our next uh, – well, the way I like to close the show is to end with one minute of optimism from each speaker. So the goal here is that uh, sometimes during COVID we get extremely negative, um, and I, I do want to leave on an optimistic tone. So I'm going to go around – the table and try to hear from each speaker something to be optimistic about. Uh, So let me start with our first speaker today, David Edgerton. David, um, what are you optimistic about that we we may have missed? David, you're on a mute or I've lost you. He's disconnected. Okay, thank you. Uh, Ari, are you with us? Yes, yes, can you hear me? Yeah, so Ari, what are you optimistic about? Um, I guess most specifically with your work on COVID. I'm optimistic uh, we have uh, new vaccines coming. We have great new treatments. Uh, the numbers will come down soon, and we will be over this sooner rather than later. We're going to have a lot of hurt, but there's also going to be a deeper appreciation for family and friends, and even the most antisocial of people like myself will love going to parties. I'm very <laughs> I don't think you're antisocial at all, Ari. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, someone sent me a video of you playing guitar. You don't seem any antisocial at all. Okay, um, Martin, what are you what are you optimistic about? Well, I mean, I I think the development of the vaccines is, is a pretty extraordinary event. I mean, when when COVID first struck, I mean, I know several people who actually were very well connected with the medical and, and the research establishment, and what they kept telling me was. 
optimistic two years, pessimistic three years, real pessimistic coronavirus, you can't get a vaccine. And here we are within a year, and uh, we're off and running. Yeah, um, it's incredible. No question about it. And yes, uh, on what happens next, we interviewed a number of the vaccine people, and they were um, some were quite pessimistic. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay, uh, Bill Easterly. Yeah, um, one one thing I'm optimistic about is the future of Africa. I've worked on Africa my my whole career. I, I lived in Africa as a child, and it's just remarkable how the spread of economic and political freedom. The amazing African economists and political activists that I know, democratic activists that I know, have changed Africa. And the, Africa has actually had one of the highest rates of economic growth, not, not getting much attention for it over the last 20 years. So I think that's a, a bright spot in this gloom and doom that we're talking about. Okay. Um, and finally, our, our last speaker, Alan Bromwitz. What, what, what are you optimistic about? Well, I'd say that I'm actually optimistic about the ability of American democracy to survive Donald Trump. Um, And I think it's quite remarkable that we've seen so many, uh, the people who actually conduct our elections have generally behaved, you know, very well and very, in some cases, very courageously. Uh, And despite everything, you know, we're going to end up with a new president. Uh, And I think that we're going to see over the next two to four years, I'm pretty optimistic that the Republican Party actually will move past Donald Trump. Um, I, I think that there are enough Republicans out there, and even even among Republican voters, uh, who I think will recognize that that whole, tr- try, trying to double down on Trumpism and continuing along those lines, once he's out of the White House, I think his hold on, on the Republican Party is going to be much, much weaker. Okay. All right, so that ends um, today's session. I do want to make a plug for next week. Um, we will have Patrick Allett uh, talking about Orwell and Churchill. Betsy Stevenson will join us again. She's a labor economist and was chief economist at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, Brendan Hoffman uh, is the CEO of another uh, retailing uh, clothing company. We'll hear from Brendan. The sociologist Gary Fine and the educator William Fischel. All right. Uh, With that, that ends today's show. I'd like to thank our speakers for their time and their insight, and of course, to our listeners for joining us as always. Uh, You may disconnect. Thank you so much for joining us today. Bye-bye.